Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in.net. I'm Sean Clayberry, your host, and with me today are your co-hosts, Caleb Wells from New Orleans. Hey y'all. Hey. How's it going? Good. Good. Weather's finally yeah. cooling off where I'm at. So yeah, I'm actually sleeping better because it's not so hot at night. Yeah, it's it's not cooling off where I'm at, but we're <laughs> used to it. I think I told you I went for a walk one morning earlier this week and at 540, it said the feels like temperature was 91 degrees. Like, yep, that's New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> so, our other co host, Wai Lu. Hey, Wai. Sean and Caleb. Hey, you doing? Hey, we're so, good. Uh, yeah. So, why with, with Australia in lockdown, are the kids driving you crazy or are you driving the kids crazy? Oh, the kids are definitely driving me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> can't really blame them, but um, yes, we're in, we're, in back, we're in quarantine as well, so we can't even leave the house, like not even to go to the shops and stuff. So, got another week of that to go. <laughs> Are they getting the vaccines around? You get an appointment for that? I've got an appointment, but we, I think it's like the start of October or something. So really, okay. wow. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of demand right now, and not enough vaccines. Right. I guess so. Yeah, we had that same problem a while back, and then all the people who wanted the vaccines were were done. <laughs> and Just shift them our way. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. All right, let's uh, welcome our guests. Christos Maskus. Welcome, Chris. Hey, nice to be here. Hey, glad to have you. How are you? I am good. Not, not in isolation yet. I don't know how things are going to pan out. I think from next week, we're starting mandatory masks again. Mm. But we are surviving. I think 18 months have proved that we are resilient. Yeah. Where I'm at, uh, I'm really close to two colleges, universities. So all the kids have just came back into town. And so our, our population doubles. And mm. so... It's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> but, so, uh, well, I was going to say, humans are definitely resilient. Sometimes a little too resilient. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> when I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Go ahead, Sean. Yeah. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into development, how you got into working with .NET and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. So I I went to university. I was a late bloomer. So I went to university about 23 and I knew I wanted to be a developer. So I started software engineering. And in fact, the second year of university, we switched from Java to that very new thing called .NET. In fact, it was the first version of .NET. So it didn't even have a version yet. It was like the .NET framework. And we were probably one of the first universities in the UK to start working with .NET, which meant that for since 2002, I've been working with .NET consistently. Like yeah, I've gone I think, through I, all the versions. <laughs> I think they were they were thinking about calling it ASP Plus back then. 
So yes. there was Active yeah. Server Pages, and then I heard about ASP Plus, and then that went away, and it was .NET. Yeah, and I've been stuck with uh, various versions of .NET ever since. I wouldn't say stuck. I've I had the opportunity to do a lot of different things from the very early versions of Web Forms, which are still around, which is amazing. WCF, WPF, and then Windows 7, Windows 8, uh, WinRT, and all that excitement, and ASP.NET consistently since you know 2005. So these days, I play around with the latest and greatest bits like .NET 6, minimal APIs. And my focus these days is around security and identity. I work as a PM at Microsoft. I'm in the Microsoft Identity team, and I work as a developer advocate there. So my role is to go out and help developers write slightly more secure and more robust software, hopefully. Do we need secure apps? I don't worry about it. Well, I don't know. <laughs> do you use T-Mobile, for example, which made the news last week for 100 million records? Or do you use any of the other software out there that like your banking or anything else that deals with money and personal information? Maybe T-Mobile should worry about it. Security is a difficult subject. I mean, period. And it gets even more difficult when you're working with legacy applications. I actually spent some time this week updating a code base that was pulling plain text passwords from an XML file in the repo <laughs> to pull it from the database in the instead. In the repo. Does um, that mean every time the there's a new, user, a new user, they've got to, they've got to do a release? <laughs> Update the XML uh, file? <laughs> no, the XML file was, was actually logging information to Sabre, which is a system that travel companies use to book flights and hotels and wow. stuff. So basically, it was like our like a service access. account, basically. This is just hard coded into them. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you know, there's there's tons of of security issues out there that you can resolve. I'm actually spending some time doing that right now. We've got Sonar Cube, and it's given us like 60 high level, high impact <laughs> problems that, as the <laughs> new architect, I'm trying to tackle. So. Yes, security is extremely complex because it's not like, hey, let's uh, throw a firewall in front of the stuff and then everything is right. solved. We have so many different layers. It starts with the hardware and then it goes into the software, i.e. the operating system and any other interdependent software solutions like browser. Before you even hit your website, you have all these things that they need to be secure before you get there. And then finally, our code, right? And our mm -hmm. code can be extremely complex. Every code, is, every code base is a snowflake because Everybody in the world writes, writes software slightly different. And therefore, this I mean, we have some standard practices or best practices around security. But because software can be implemented in so many different ways and there's so many coroutines, even in, in the same application, it's very hard to, to do security, especially as an afterthought. That's the, that's the biggest problem there, for, especially for people that are slightly more senior in the industry and they, they have seen a few things and they know slightly better. When they are faced with new challenges, it becomes uh, a race to try to fill all the gaps. So ideally, as developers, we should be starting with security in mind. And we are responsible for the software that we write. So ideally, as you write one line of code, you need to think about how is this going to impact our customers or our customers' data or the, the execution of the, the code. Managing secrets has changed a lot since the early 2000s in .NET. Do you like the direction that Microsoft has gone with the framework? And what are some of the benefits of the, the current tooling around secrets? Yes, things have changed quite a bit. Our biggest challenge is that people haven't changed. 
along with the, the platform, right? So people that started writing code 10, 15 years ago, they might still be using the same practices and not jumping on the latest and greatest. However, let's assume that you start today. There are some fantastic tools out there to allow you to eliminate secrets from your code because one of the easiest things to mount attacks with is by scanning a repo. And these days, everybody's using GitHub or some other repository. Sometimes these repositories are even open to the public. But even if, if they're not, the fact that you have secrets in your database can become an attack vector, right? Uh, you put a, a secret to a server that runs your website or maybe your database, and suddenly everything that is supposed to be stored there is now available to an attacker because they had you know, the username and password to log in or the connection string. So .NET has done a fantastic job to either work with other services that allow you to protect things or to eliminate the need for secrets directly in the code. So if you are developing locally, for example, you have your um, .NET secrets command line. If you're in .NET Core, that allows you to at least store uh, some information outside your repository. But please know that these are still in plain, in plain text. So it's a, a stopgap. Also, it doesn't scale well with larger teams because if I have my secrets file in my local repository and a new team member joins, then they have to run the same command, they need to know what these secrets are, and suddenly you start setting these secrets. Also, we're not very good at, at storing and managing secrets are at an enterprise level. I've been in many companies where they had them in an Excel file. I've been in companies that had them in plain XML files or whatever, or luckily some of them are using an enterprise level you know, password manager. So that's that's the other challenge, like how do we manage these passwords? And then there, there are things like Key Vault, or other services on Azure, if you're running on Azure, that you can use to, again, remove secrets from your application and delegate them to another service that can store them securely. And ideally, again, there will be uh, stopgaps and security gates in front of that connection to allow you to only access the secrets that you're supposed to and only pull them at the time that you need them. Yeah, I think like the, the problem with putting your secrets inside like, like a repo is, is so common, I think. I think it was the Slack API. If you've, it actually goes and scans GitHub. And if you've actually got your um, auth key or something um, in any repo, it'll just immediately send you an email and you revoke that that's that auth key. Just because it's just so common that people will, will just accidentally commit <laughs> like a secret in, into there. So, and if it's on GitHub, it's basically available mm-hmm. publicly, right? So, well, that. And likewise, there are malicious services out there that will scan continuously to do the exact same thing. In fact, I think one of them was scanning and streaming the information live. So you could actually go open the portal and see what happens and you get stream of information like SSH keys or PGP keys. And I suspect that some of them could be private or internal and they made the, the, the public domain by accident. So it's scary how quickly that information mm. becomes available because as soon as you push something into the public domain, there will be tools out there. There will be bots that try to scan for vulnerabilities and use that information. In fact, there's a story from 2012 when I was uh, moving my blog from, from WordPress to uh, Ghost. And it was a new platform. It would allow you to actually uh, create a sign-up service so people that come to your blog could sign up for your newsletter, which I never actually went to implement. But I had the email service, which was working with SendGrid. And SendGrid would provide you with a free account for 30,000 emails per month, I think. So I, I you know, I, I customized my blog. I pushed it to Azure. I committed to GitHub. I was super <laughs> happy. I woke up the next morning 
with a fantastic email from SetGrid saying, hey, you reached your quota. 30,000 emails <laughs> were sent out between yesterday and today. And I was so excited. I was like, I went viral overnight. That's amazing. <laughs> and one of the things that said on email was like, make sure you haven't committed any of the SendGrid credentials into your GitHub repo. And then just the light bulb went up. I was like, oh, man, I Ooh. rushed to my GitHub repo. And that was it. I mean, luckily, there was no financial harm. But at the same time, somebody was able to use my account literally within minutes from the moment I published my account or my details onto GitHub. And they went to use that service. So sometimes it's not about actually stealing information or customer data. It's actually stealing resources. Right? So if somebody can, can actually gain access to a VM, there might be no data there, but they can take all the compute and run things like uh, bit mining, right? Bitcoin mining or something else that they need to run or a bot that runs uh, quietly behind the scenes. They have no idea about it. Therefore, these, these attacks sometimes take place without us even realizing it. So, so someone could have used my SendGrid and slowly trickle and send emails without really getting charged or whatever if I had a, a non-developer account. So see? Mm. GitHub's trying to help out a little bit now, right? They're trying to catch things. You know, as you check it in, they try to, to see something like, that looks like a password. Or that looks like a social security number or birth mm -hmm. date or something like that. They do. They have a dependable as well. Uh, we'll also look at your dependencies. So for example, if you're using a dependent library or dependency as a library that might have a vulnerability, dependable will actually capture it and say, and in fact, it will mine the other day, created a branch and updated yep. my package version to the one that did not have a vulnerability. And then all I had to do was just a pull request to myself, which was insanely clever. But the problem is that we need to capture that further to the left, right? We need to be a right. lot more conscious. That information makes it into the public domain. It's way too late. That information has already done damage. So we need to be a lot more consistent on how we're at the code and how do we safeguard against this code making it to the code base. This is where secure development lifecycle principles come in, where you do your commit, you do a pull request within your team. And somebody actually looks through your code to make sure they haven't really screwed up accidentally or you haven't committed something that you shouldn't have. So we try to bring that notion a lot earlier into the development process. Sometimes we even involve the security teams into the sprints. So certain things should be raised as part of the sprint planning, right? What are we building? Do we need to run you know, a security analysis on this work? And will there be any, anything that could be used to launch an attack against us? So again, like DevOps, it's a culture change, not a tooling change. We need to help developers. There are the tools out there, especially if you're working with .NET and ASP.NET. There are tools like Key Vault that will mount directly into your middleware and will allow you to eliminate secrets. But again, it's not just the code. It can be your DevOps process that could compromise things down the line. It could be an open port on your infrastructure that could also compromise your, your code. All these layers need to be taken into consideration. So for people who are not using Azure or mm -hmm. .NET Core, or .NET 5, which I've had the pleasure of using in the past year, but with my current job, we are not because yep. we're, we're old school still. We and on-prem and we got a, a long way to go. Right. What are your suggestions there, right? We've, again, you've got the mm -hmm. plain text stuff in the repo, which is a no-go. You've got environment variables. You've got information that you're storing in a database. Yep. that you can then query once mm -hmm. that is up. What are your suggestions for people who are on .NET Framework or on-prem? We're thinking about layers again, right? Secure layers. So in your database, if you're using SQL, there are tools to allow you to do row-level encryption or table encryption or full database encryption. So your DBA team should be 
your database administrator team should be looking into how they can secure that. Then there are things like HashiCorp. Now, I'm not Microsoft, but then again, if, if you are going to write soft, software and you cannot use our tools, which is totally acceptable, not everyone is running on the Microsoft stack, then there are other vendors and other companies that will allow you to either do similar things like Key Vault on-prem. So I think it's uh, HashiCorp. There's a product there from HashiCorp that allows you to do that. So in effect, what you are achieving there is, okay, we're not running on cloud, but we can still use similar tools like Key Vault to store sensitive information. And then you can use list privilege, for example. So the accounts that are running your application should only have certain privileges to your databases or to your HashiCorp keys or whatever else. And then again, it's the case of who's managing the secrets. In many cases, developers are entrusted with production keys or production secrets, which they shouldn't have, right? As a developer, first of all, I don't don't want to have the responsibility of knowing what the production secret is. And the IT team should not worry about who's getting access. And it's very common. Developers have to go and fix stuff. So they will be uh, given privileged accounts or privileged secrets to access production systems. And this is where the damage happens. Sometimes accidentally, I've seen people deleting databases by mistake in Azure. And I've seen people taking down a whole, what was it, the Team City they had a Team City cluster and they wiped it out. So on a Friday afternoon, somebody went and deleted it because they were, they were doing maintenance. And then they spend the whole weekend rebuilding their Team City setup. And then you have uh, people maliciously doing that, right? Somebody gets fired and, you know, or somebody is is upset because they didn't get the right bonus or whatever, or the promotion. And they take that information and they, they can do a lot of damage. So who has access to that information? What is your security threat modeling there? How are you doing it? There are a lot of advanced uh, concepts, but I believe that by hiring or getting the right people in and by having the appropriate lockdowns and gates will allow your developers to be able to move quickly and benefit from tooling like whatever you're using, Keyvol, HashiCorp, to delegate those secrets to something else that can actually be audited and managed by somebody that is not a developer. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up.
one of the one of the things about security that's always been a problem is that it's been more difficult to be secure than really people thought it was worth spending the time. Like I remember back in the early .NET days working with the web config mm-hmm. and what it took to actually encrypt a section of the web config and then unconf- unencrypted so you can make changes is like, no, it's not yeah. worth it. Yeah, yeah, it was hard. You had to have a certificate and then it would work on your local machine, but it wouldn't work in production because now you changed, you know, you changed servers. Now that certificate mm-hmm. is not installed or it's not valid. I remember it was a pain, right? And you're right. We haven't really, I mean, these days things are easier. It's almost an expectation. Oh, you have to run on the cloud. If you're running on the cloud, there's so many benefits, but there are so many people still running on-prem and they have to have the same kind of security. So certain things have moved on quite a bit, but I still think that there are challenges out there and people still don't understand the basic concepts of encryption and hashing and when to use what. And even when you know what to use, then like, okay, so I don't have to encrypt, I have to hash. Okay, which hashing algorithm am I going to use? Which one is stronger? What happens? Like, which library am I going to use? Am I going using an open source library? Am I getting proprietary software? So it's all these concepts. Security is hard. And I wish we were doing a better job in actually teaching developers security very early on in their software development process or training, right? It should be, should be a core concept in universities, for example, or colleges. Yeah, I, I could never figure out why can't I just in Visual Studio, you know, right-click on my web config and say encrypt, unencrypt. Well, <laughs> it, it would work perfect. I suspect <laughs> that we can do that. There might be an extension out there. The problem is what happens when you need to push that to production and how that call will, will work in the exact same way. Because even though Visual Studio does rightly publish, a lot of uh, capabilities need to, or a lot of features need to be implemented manually. Yeah. Well, it should be able to, when you put, when you publish, you hit publish, it goes out and says, is that certificate out there? Yes. No. Okay. Fix it. Uh, Fix it. Make it easy for me, please. (laughs) I can tell you that the workflow from writing code in Visual Studio and publishing to Azure and having all your secrets in Key Vault is streamlined. It's, you make it super simple. It's very easy to, to go through that process. So we all just need to upgrade to .NET 6 and Blazor and Azure, and the world will be a better and safer place. Yeah, I mean, ideally, but you don't have to. I mean, you can you can still use uh, Keyboard with uh, web forms. In fact, I have a blog post about doing that, right? So you don't have to be on the latest and greatest. You just need to probably okay. use the right libraries for what yeah. you need. But cool. you don't have to rewrite your whole solution just to benefit from these security enhancements. So what's the process of using Key Vault? How do you get started with, with it? It's an Azure service. So as everything else, you have to provision a resource on Azure. You go into your Azure portal or you can use the CLI and spin up a brand new Key Vault. And that Key Vault is a, it's a managed service. Therefore, you don't have to worry about patching or whatever. And it stores keys and secrets safely for you. Then there's an API or there's an SDK that you can use at the, your favorite language. And you use that SDK to go and either add, query, or retrieve your secrets or your keys at the time that you need them. And the nice thing about Keybolt is that everything is managed, everything is backed up, and everything has auditing. So if an application is accessing a secret, you can see that in the auditing. If Christos from Germany is trying to access the key vault, then you will see that. And like, where where is Christos? And why is he in Germany? And why is he accessing the key vault manually, right? So this is the information that you get from there. There's uh, machine learning behind the scenes as well. And me as a developer, the nice thing is that I don't really have to know what the secrets are. 
all I have to say is that give me a connection string to my Cosmos or give me a connection string to my MongoDB database and Kibble will return the appropriate key. You can also do key rotation and will automatically roll keys because that's another problem that we see. Sometimes people will just store passwords for eternity and they will never roll them, which is also a problem, especially if prior developers had knowledge of those uh, secrets. So in your code, all you have to do, especially if you're looking about .NET, then in your code, there's a .NET SDK for the Key Vault. You spin up a client or instantiate a client. And now this is the magic uh, part, which I really enjoy. You don't have to pass any connection string sensitive information into that instantiation. So you say, I want to connect to my Key Vault. You pass the Key Vault name, which is a URL, and then you use a credential provider which looks into certain parameters and then it will create a connection securely to that key vault. So the Azure Identity, which is a core library of the Azure SDKs, allows you to secretless connect, secretlessly connect to your key vault or other services. In effect, it doesn't use a username and a password. It will try to figure out if there's a connected account somewhere like your personal account, which shouldn't be, or a service principal account on the local machine. And if you're running on Azure, or under Azure Arc, then there might be a managed identity out there. And that managed identity will connect as long as it's it's been provisioned. So not only do you need to have an account that has access to Azure and it's signed in, but also that account needs to have the appropriate permissions on Kibble. So with that in mind, if you are developing locally, then there should be a service principal account, not your account, because I bet that most of you out there listening to this one right now are probably admins or owners of your Azure subscription, which can make a lot of demands. It's a hybridly privileged account because most companies will go, hey, you have an MSDN subscription or we have uh, you know, this other subscription. There you go, get an owner account, go and do whatever you want, which is a lot of damage. So we want to use a service principal account that has been provisioned only for access to Key Vault, a highly locked down account. So you use that account and then in Key Vault, you will go and configure that service principal to only have the permissions that you want. Maybe that account should only have a get permission, like go and get me a secret or a list permission. You might have a very, I think it's a little bit of a, of a right field permission, but the, like I, I don't usually see applications having write permissions, for example, or delete permissions to the Key Vault because usually they just need to retrieve stuff. So that setup works perfectly locally and everybody in your team can use that service principle and they can sign in with that. And then once you go into production, that exact same code base without changing a single line of code will be able to operate under the context of a different account. Now that you're running production, it's probably a managed identity. That's again, an Azure Active Directory provisioned account. It's managed, it's rolled, it's uh, it's fully uh, managed for you. And that managed identity will have the exact same permissions, ideally, into your uh, key vault. So now you have full auditing about who's accessing it and where and when, and you don't have to change the code. You don't have to change configuration. You don't have to change anything. Maybe the only change could be that you have a key vault for uh, development and a key vault resource for production. Sometimes that's a kind of an architecture that some companies will choose. And uh, your Azure DevOps process, no, sorry, your DevOps process should be the one that deals with that change in the config. So no secrets and the code works out of the out of the box. So is it kind of like my SQL server connection string where I say, you know, be the, use the machine's identity? Yes. Whatever that, yeah, that process exactly. is running at, that's what it uses. Yeah. Yeah. And the nice thing is that, you know, you can actually use a managed identity now with SQL. So I don't know if you know that, but you can have a web application, an ASP.NET MVC application that needs to connect to SQL. That ASP.NET application runs under a managed identity context. 
And then in your SQL, you'll say, I want this master then to be able to have reader permissions or owner permissions to my database. Again, going with the list privilege approach. And again, no secrets, no usernames or passwords. And because on Azure, you don't really have the context of your machine because it is, uh, if you're running on Azure Web Apps, for example, then you don't really have a machine account. You need to have some kind of account and that's your managed identity account. And it's all working out of the box. So SQL Client 3.0 and later actually allows you to pass that, which is fantastic. So so fundamentally, just to describe the, the pattern, I guess, are we saying that um, when you write code, you don't put your secrets in the code? Okay, instead of doing that, you you have a an account that goes and accesses the secret at an, in another location, and that account is, I guess, and, and that that whole pattern is replicated across like different environments, kind of thing. So, when you're in dev, you access the dev location for your code, and then when you migrate to you know, test, that you access the Test location and then prod you do the same thing. Would that be kind of like a just fundamentally yep. kind of the pattern? It would about? be because if you think about it, usually you have a developer database as well and some developer yeah. other dependencies. Then in QA you have your your you know your QA database and in production you have your proper production. So technically these secrets should be different and therefore those locations will uh, will differ. Now there's different patterns. People will use probably things like different keyboards. Or sometimes they will use different naming patterns for their keyboard secrets if they only want to have one keyboard. And then, you know, there will be some kind of transformation during your uh, DevOps process. So when you push your code to QA, you might prepend everything with a QA underscore. And mm. then all the variables that you're looking for will be under QA underscore in your keyboard. And the nice thing that is that you as a developer don't have to manage the account that you're using to, to sign into uh, keyboard, and you don't even know what these secrets are, right? The only way to figure them out, I guess, is if you're debugging and you're pulling the secrets right at the debug process where you're mm. stopping and stepping through your code. But an, an attacker gaining access to your Azure Web App uh, or your VM where your uh, code is running, even if they were to uh, reverse IL the code and go through it line by line, they won't, they won't be able to find anything that can be used to you know, go to Kivol, for example, and actually pull all these secrets because they wouldn't have the permissions or the credentials to do that. So you've mentioned DevOps a few times, and you, you also mentioned even if we do everything right from a code level and managing our secrets and keeping all that uh, sensitive information out of our code base, that there are security vulnerabilities in the DevOps process. Can you give us some examples and how Azure helps secure those processes? Yeah, again, there is a little bit of dependency here on the cloud, obviously, but I suspect yep. that yep. you could probably do the same thing if you were using different providers. So assume that you're running on Azure and you're in the happy path. Any tool they use out there, whether it's Azure DevOps or, or GitHub Actions, again, they can benefit from using a service principal account to connect to a service. And although this example is not valid anymore because unfortunately our team is so good that they went, they went and fixed it, but up until very recently, if you had to provision a SQL server, an Azure SQL server, you had to pass a username and a password. You had to provide SQL credentials for the admin account. And that was like the last bit that was always troublesome, right? Because I don't want to have to pass them in. So your ARM template or your Pulumi code or your Terraform code had to actually pass that information at the point of the provisioning. 
So that was part of your DevOps, right? And that was a problem because you either had to store them as secrets or you had to pass them as parameters somehow. So yeah, let's go with example of Pulumi. Now, Pulumi has a key vault provider. So what you can do is you can use the service principal account that runs your Pulumi deployment to connect to key vault, pull that information across and populate the variables for your username and password before you even provision your Azure SQL service. Now, you don't have to do that anymore, as I said, because the Azure team went and fixed it. So now you can actually provision an Azure SQL server without having to pass an, a SQL credential. It works with Azure Active Directory out of the box. But there are other examples where you have dependencies on third-party APIs that you need to pass those keys, or it needs to be part of your infrastructure that you cannot escape. Therefore, these secrets need to be decoupled again from your code. I have a funny story where at some point we went to do an Azure workload optimization. It's a service that our services team offered to our customers where we actually go into customers' offices. We sit down with everyone, the team, security, DevOps, developers, project managers, and we discuss about their infrastructure and the process on how they do things. And in one of these conversations, we're talking to the DevOps team and we're discussing about the deployment process. And they say, oh, we use ARM, which is brilliant. Okay, you're using ARM. Fantastic. Walk us through the process. And they say, well, we're on the deployment. We take the ARM template and the parameters and we push them into Azure Storage. And then we have a separate service that actually runs that uh, PowerShell script and pulls the ARM um, templates from the storage account. It's like, perfect. Where's the storage account and how is it secure? At that point, everybody just turned around and they realized that it was an insecure storage account that everybody had access to. I mean, it's you had to guess the name, but let's say somebody scans for every random permutation. And now the ARM template with the parameters all sitting in, in clear text are sitting in that repository. And it was scary because they hadn't realized that they were doing that until we actually asked them. So... I think there was an example maybe from a year ago where some medical information was stored or banking information was stored in an insecure storage account on Azure and some like 500 million pieces of data were taken away. So as you can see, you know, you can do, again, it's layers, right? You can write super secure code and you can eliminate all the secrets and then suddenly your infrastructure becomes the attack vector. So hopefully things like Palumi, Terraform, ARM templates, Bicep, they all work with Keyvault and you can benefit from the exact same thing. Even, even clear ARM templates, you can pass the, the Keyvault reference instead of the actual secret and we'll go and pull it for you as long as your, your DevOps process has the right permissions to do that, which is always fun trying to debug if mm. it doesn't work. Yeah. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. All right, guys, let's move on to picks. Who wants to go first? Okay, so this pick actually came about because of this discussion, and I realized, hey, I'm using the service, and I actually like the way it works. It's called Privacy or privacy.com. And this company... What they figured out is you set up an account with them and they will generate credit card numbers for you with with the expiration dates and the whole deal. And then these credit card numbers are only virtual and they actually allow you to put a limit on the card. So one time $45 max or a max per month or a max per year. And I've actually used it 
I think five or six times, typically for like subscription services that I'm testing out and I want to see how they work, but I don't want to necessarily give them the keys to the kingdom with my, my normal credit card. And it's, it's benefited me at least once because I signed up for something to test it out and put enough money on it to do one month subscription. And I didn't really like it. So I canceled it, but it didn't get canceled um, on their end. I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was a mistake. And for several weeks, I was getting emails from privacy saying, so-and-so company has tried to charge this amount to your card and it, and it failed. Right. Um, so I, contacted the company like, oh, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, well, we'll we'll cancel your account. And of course, you have to give it some way to pay money. So it's connected to my checking account. But I use a password manager. And you know, it's got a a very long password, but I found it really useful. So yeah, privacy.com. I wish, I wish banks did that allowed you to basically issue use once credit card numbers, you know, like, I'm surprised that hasn't happened yet. I guess, but I guess banking infrastructures. Some of them do. Some of them do. I have a couple of of credit cards that will allow you to create a one-time virtual credit card. Yeah, that's awesome. Do they they charge for that service, Caleb? You know what? Uh, I haven't tried it. Well, they they charge if you do like more than five credit cards a month. Like you create more. It depends on how many you're creating. For me, I create one a month at the most or one every couple of months. And so now it's free. So do you top up the same credit card over and over again? Is that how it works? You can. I, what I've done is I've actually created a credit card for each subscription. And then if that subscription, say, is $12 a month, I tell it max $12 a month per month, and it automatically gets paid out of my credit card. But if if I know that I, I've got a year subscription, but I don't want to necessarily renew, right? I can set an end date for for this credit card. So if I actually forget to cancel the subscription, it's canceled. The, the credit card will no longer work. So yeah, it's... It's it's a nice system, and and yeah, they do have a paid version, but but I don't I don't have the need for that, at least not at this point. So yeah, check it out. Nice. Mm-hmm. What's your pick? Why? So this week, just because we're in quarantine, as I mentioned before, is for a game studio called RV App Studio. So with little kids, I've been trying to find like educational apps for them to use, but all of them have got like just tons of ads and stuff like that and they don't know what they're doing and they're often like just going, oh, why have I clicked on this and all that stuff? But um, like this company, I'm not sure if they're like a non-profit or something, but they've got like tons and tons of apps and none of them have any ads or anything and they're all like fairly educational. So um, yeah, I've just been getting my kids to play them with that um, while while I've been trying to work and all that stuff. So yeah, they're, they're a good company. All right, Christos, what's your pick that you want to let listeners know about? That's a good question. I think we mentioned Have I Been Pwned? I don't know if you've talked about this one before, but I would highly recommend going to haveibeenpwned.com and registering the email addresses that you use for buying stuff. I would say it's a fantastic service because Troy is actually capturing any any data dumps that are taken from websites that have been owned by hackers. And use that information to alert you. So if you ever used your Gmail address to buy socks, I don't know why, what's wrong with socks today. I don't know. But anyway, let's say you bought socks from this random uh, supplier and they got owned, then at least you can go and either delete that account or rotate the, your secrets and make sure that they're not used. Ideally, you have separate secrets for or passwords for these kinds of things. But as I said, people tend to be lazy. I used to be lazy. So uh, I've been caught by that. I think right now it sits at 11 billion 
and 500 million email unique email addresses that have been captured throughout the the service. So that's like almost double the population of the earth. And I suspect that mm-hmm. your email address will probably be somewhere in there. Go and use that service. So I've heard of that service, but I'm always concerned about putting in my actual password just in case that that service itself is mm-hmm. also just like a scam. Like <laughs> That is a valid question. Like, I don't really care about my username at this uh, sock place. Sorry, sock place. Uh, that's, that's, that's not even a real name. But what happens is the attackers will take that information and then they will try to use those credentials across multiple services. As I said, yeah, people tend to be lazy. So they might have already used that same email address and password on their Facebook account or mm. their Netflix account. So now I can watch them and watch some random stuff. Okay, so Netflix is not really a big problem, but what happens with Facebook is I can sign in as yourself and then I can suddenly say, well, disaster has hit our family, you know, flood has taken our house, we're homeless, we have nowhere to live, please send us money. And friends and family will rush into sending money to uh, help you out. Obviously, they're not mm. sending the money to you, they're sending it to the, the person that is personating you. And uh, the FBI estimates that in 2018, over $250 million were stolen using this kind of attacks. So it might look totally innocuous for you or totally innocent to have your email and password stolen from some random uh, site. And if you are using unique usernames and passwords, then perfect. That's not going to be a problem for you. But because the majority of people out there, the non-IT people, will just go and reuse passwords, it becomes a very uh, profitable way of attacking. And it's like, no, you don't have, even have to try. You just go, there are tools that will go and try all these different permutations of usernames and passwords that were acquired by a dump, and then they will land somewhere. So that's why you need to be aware of your credentials and your identity. Your digital identity is super important. Or they can even take over your Twitter account. Now, good luck trying to claim that back. Uh, why? And have I been pwned doesn't require a password. All you have to do is put in an email or phone right. number. For instance, I've been, I've been there before, but I just went back and put in one of my emails. And it gives me all the breaches. 500 PX, CD Projekt Red, Daily Motion, Dropbox, Evite, Last FM, Park Mobile, Pluto TV, Trillion, Wildstar. Mm-hmm. And this is just one of my email accounts. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, scary. Yep. My email, one of my emails is listed 18 different events. So. But I've had there that email go. for almost 20 years. So, all right. So, uh, my pick. This week is uh, before we start recording, Christos and I were talking about, you know, where I'm from. I'm from the town of Puyallup, which is just south of Seattle. And we're talking about the fair that they have there. It's just an enormous fair. It's not your normal county fair. It's it's huge. It goes for three weeks. It's got rides, animals, food, exhibits, vendors, just about all you can think of. Last I heard, it's like in the top 10 largest fairs in the country. So it's that big. So, and it happens in September every year. So it's uh, coming up next month, but I won't be there because I'm playing it safe and I'm not in Puyallup right now. So, but that's where I grew up and I actually worked there one, one summer. So that was a good, good experience. So I grew up about three miles from the fair. So they actually have the fair.com. So if you want to see all the different things that go on there, like this year, they've got some good concerts going on. They've got uh, the Steve Miller band. They've got, Carrie Underwood, they've got the Beach Boys, they've got Oak Ridge Boys, 38 Special, lots of big bands and comics go there and give shows during during the fair. So if you happen to get to Western Washington, check out the fair. 
or if you're around there, they call it Do the Piala. All right. Thanks, guys. If our listeners want to reach out to us, we'd love to hear from you. We, you can get right in touch with me. I am on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. <laughs> and I'm Caleb Wells Coach. No sound effects. Well, you know, I'm not a superhero. <laughs> Thanks, Christos. It's been good. Thanks, Christos. Yeah, Thanks great. Thank you, man. Great security. Yeah. Great discussion. Man, now I got to think about all the apps that I wrote that are out there running. And it's like, uh-oh. Mm-hmm. No point in reminiscing, you know? Yeah. Just look into the future and how you can be better there. Just There you go. Don't be a lazy coder. Mm. Think about security. Security first. Yeah, so many things to think. Performance, security, scalability. Ideally, you want the platform to take care of these, and then you can focus on you know, writing software when you can. All right, great. Thanks, everybody. And 